Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by state historian emeritus Walt Woodward and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. And I'm Mary Donahue, assistant publisher of Connecticut Explored. The 15 sites on New London's Black Heritage Trail highlight the courage, persistence, and contributions of New London's Black community over the course of three centuries. A plaque at the Amistad Pier now marks the 1761 arrival of a slave ship called the Speedwell. The city was a participant in the transatlantic slave trade. The Speedwell arrived in New London on July 17, 1761, after a journey of several months from West Africa to the Americas. The boat departed with 95 enslaved persons. Only 74 survived the journey. The captain of the Speedwell, Timothy Miller, sailed up the Connecticut River to Middletown after a few days in New London. Although the ship's records don't show where the Africans aboard the Speedwell ended up, the probate record of Norman Morrison, a Hartford physician who owned 716th of the Speedwell, shows 21 enslaved West Africans were placed on his farm in Bolton, Connecticut. Morrison died in 1761, and the fate of the people on the Bolton farm is not yet known. In this episode, Kathy Hermes, Lonnie Braxton, and Tom Shook discussed Morrison and the Speedwell, the Black Heritage Trail and its significance, and the impact of the slave trade on Connecticut and its trading networks. Hi, I'm Kathy Hermes. I'm a retired professor of history from Central Connecticut State University, and I'm now the publisher of Connecticut Explored magazine the history magazine for Connecticut. When I worked at CCSU, a team of students and I worked on a project for the ancient burying ground in Hartford called Uncovering Their History, African, African African-American and Native American burials in Hartford's ancient burying ground, 1640 to 1815. And I'm here to talk today as a game changer named by Connecticut Explored Magazine as a project that's taking Connecticut into the future. And I'm here with two other game changers. Lonnie Braxton is a former senior assistant state's attorney in New London and a Navy veteran. He's been doing historical research for the Black Heritage Trail. He's an African-American film historian who has run an African-American film festival at the New London Public Library every Friday in February for the last 16 years. It includes a civil rights display, for Black History Month. And this past year, it was assisted curated by Tom's wife, Catherine. Tom Shook is a New London native and a graduate of Georgetown University in Washington, DC, with a longstanding interest in social justice issues. He retired after 38 years as an executive director of a local residential facility for troubled adolescent males. He has an avid interest in history, particularly John Brown and the Civil War, But as a lifelong Sherlock Holmes fan, his area of special interest has become unknown, hidden, forgotten, or suppressed local history. This interest is what led him to the discovery of a number of previously unknown or forgotten stories of New London history, including New London's 10 Green Book sites, as well as the stories of Ichabod Pease, Frederick Douglass in New London, Sadie Dillon Harrison, Sarah Harris Fairweather, and Robert Jacklin, all of whom have now been commemorated with sites on the New London Black Heritage Trail, which is a Connecticut game changer. So let's talk today about a momentous event in New London just recently. 
On Sunday, July 17th, the 261st anniversary of the arrival of a ship called the Speedwell in the city of New London was commemorated with a plaque at the Amistad Pier as part of the Black Heritage Trail. The city has been recognized as a UNESCO slave route project site of memory, one of 53 sites across the United States, two of which are in Connecticut. The other is in Middletown. What is the Black Heritage Trail? And what's the significance of this dedication at the pier? And Tom, we'll start with you. Well, uh, the Black Heritage Trail is a, a series of originally 15 sites that were marked uh, significant in New London's Black history, which is something that has never really been talked about in the history of New London. As a, as a New London native, I grew up learning about uh, Nathan Hale, uh, Benedict Arnold, whaling, and uh, the West Indies trade. We never heard about many of these heroes and many of these stories that are play a significant role in New London history. The, uh, this last marker, the 16th marker, which was just installed down on the pier is significant in that uh, while the first 15 are, are mainly local stories, this marker ties New London into the global significance of the port of New London in the international slave trade. And it's, it's, it's right on the pier, by the way, installed on the pier. And when you look at the, at the marker, you are looking at the ocean that ties New London to Africa. And it's an example. It's the only documented uh, slave voyage from New London to Africa and back to New London. Uh, and that's why it's uh, significant and why it's a UNESCO site. There are many other connections, but this is this specifically is uh, part of the significance. That's fascinating. Lonnie, do you want to add anything? Yes. And not only uh, is it uh, significant, we would love to uh, be able to one day find even uh, more information concerning uh, these voyages. Uh, New London played a very, very significant role in the commerce of this country. And unfortunately, uh, some of that commerce was involved in human trafficking. So let's take us back to 1761 when the Speedwell anchored in New London. What was its cargo and why was this such a momentous event? Sure. Well, the cargo that we know about, the Speedwell embarked 95 uh, African captives off the coast of Africa. By the time they arrived here, uh, 74 had survived what's known as the Middle Passage. It's significant in that this is the only known voyage that we know yet New London, in, in 1680, there were 30 African captives in Connecticut. By 1774, there were 6,500. So the question is, where did they come from? This is one example. We know we can account for 74 that came into Connecticut at that point, but it raises a lot of questions as to, well, wait a minute, what about the other 6,500? So it, it leads us into a greater story of the significance of how that all happened right here in New London, because many people in Connecticut think that slavery was something that happened down south. They don't realize that it happened in Connecticut. And uh, there's a long history. We can get into some of the details of that. But uh, this gives us a lead in to tell some of those other stories. And what's right. so interesting about some of this, too, is that we would never think of the numbers. We look at New London. We look at Stonington. Uh, we look at Lyme. They have the highest percentage of uh, enslaved people in uh, this area. And you would never think that that would be the case. 
That, that's right. Uh, a, a guy named Lorenzo uh, Green wrote a book called The Negro in Colonial New England, 1620 to 1776. And he cites New London County. And this is something that was stunning to me. New London County was the greatest slaveholding section in New England in 1774. It had the highest percentage anywhere in New England. The, the average percentage of enslaved people in New England at that time was about 2.3%. In New London County, it was 9.8%. And the towns leading that were the greatest slave, the greatest, where the greatest numbers were, were in this order, New London, Stonington, Groton, then two towns downstate, Stratford and Fairfield, I think, and then Norwich and Lyme. Those were the largest, uh, those were the, the towns that had the largest populations of enslaved people. And I thought, wow, I grew up in New London. I never heard any of this. How did we not know this? And plantations and was, uh, existed uh, in Stonington and uh, Salem, Colchester area as well. That's right. When I was working on the um, ancient burying ground project, we were trying to figure out how many people of color were buried in the ancient burying ground. And the number 300 had always been thrown around. But in fact, we have about 500 names in our database, probably 400 of which we have some certainty could be there. and those only represent deaths of enslaved people in the town. So many more actually lived and worked in Hartford and in the surrounding areas. And I think really no town in Connecticut was untouched by slavery. Um, That's true. Uh, you know, uh, again, a lot of people think of uh, slavery as a Southern thing and they don't realize that slavery existed in Connecticut for 210 years. Uh, it was the uh, it was there was a documented uh, African uh, enslaved person in New Haven named Lucretia uh, in 1638. Uh, OK, that's that. And, and there were uh, documented native indigenous people who were enslaved before that. But from 1638 and then Connecticut did not abolish slavery until 1848, which is a period of 210 years. Uh, William Lloyd Garrison once called uh, Connecticut the Georgia of New England. OK, not a, not a flattering comment. But if you look at the data, actually, uh, Georgia was uh, founded in around 1732. Uh, for the first 18 years, slavery was illegal in Georgia. Uh, so slavery only existed in Georgia from 1750 to 1865. That's a period of about 115 years. In Connecticut, it existed nearly twice as long, 210 years. And again, that's a that's a that's a surprising fact that people just don't just aren't aware of. And it, it really makes you think about how we're telling the story of enslavement in the United States. Let's talk a little bit about Norman Morrison. He was a doctor who lived in Hartford. And he died of smallpox shortly after becoming a partial owner of the Speedwell's cargo. He had a 7 sixteenths share. The West African people on board this ship were going to a farm in Bolton, probably in an area that's now part of Vernon. But this was just one of the many properties that Morrison owned in Connecticut. Why is he so important to this story? Well, well, again, if this is part of the story of how uh, slavery existed in Connecticut. Uh, people think of plantations, for example, as things that existed down south. Uh, well, we know that what Norman Morrison had in Bolton was the equivalent of a plantation. He had uh, 20 or 30 at least uh, enslaved people. There was another 
plantation, if I can use that term, uh, in uh, Brooklyn, uh, Connecticut, uh, owned by a guy named Godfrey Nalbone, who uh, was also actually a New London landowner, uh, but his family were slave traders from Rhode Island, and they moved to Connecticut, and they owned a large plot up there. There was another one uh, owned by a guy named Mason, who may or may not have been a descendant of John Mason. It hasn't been determined, but he had a, a large farm with a, a 20 or 30 uh, enslaved people uh, around Lebanon. And then there was another one that was supposed to be in uh, Salem. There was a guy named Brown that owned uh, eight or 10,000 acres. It turns out it wasn't quite a plantation. Uh, he had he was an absentee landlord and he subdivided that huge property into 10 or, or 15 smaller plots, each of whom had enslaved people there. Uh, so they were individually, uh, in the aggregate, there were maybe 20 or 30 or more enslaved people, but it wasn't a, a one owner large place. But still, there were significant numbers of, of uh enslaved people there. And again, it's something that we don't think of in terms of New England. Most of the uh, people who were, who were enslaved in New England were one or two enslaved people in, in a household and, and in domestic kinds of things. For example, in 1790, the uh, United States Census uh, lists all the slaveholders in New London. It's, a, it's six pages long. This is New London County. It's six pages long, and the vast majority of the slaveholders owned one. Uh, some owned two. The largest one that's listed in 1790 owned seven. But most of them were small people like Adam Jackson, who lived with Joshua Hempstead. It was a, a single enslaved person living in the household. So it tells us part of the story. When, uh, when Morrison died in 1761, his captives had just been relocated from Africa to Bolton, and one thing I wanted to mention is that, you know, they still had their African names like Yamba and Dunamba, and they landed in Bolton. Because he died, he his will directed that they be sold. And so we don't know what actually happened to them. They may have been given anglicized names like some of the enslaved people that Morrison had prior to the arrival of these Africans had names like Tony. And so it's been very hard to track what happened to these people, but it's just hard to imagine coming from West Africa and then finding yourself in the middle of Connecticut in a landscape you never, you never could have imagined, not speaking English, not being able to communicate, and then being sold. I don't know if you have any reflections on that, but it, it sure strikes me as about the most traumatic thing that could happen to someone. Well, I know one of the things that came out of that uh, was that when we did the dedication ceremony uh, in New London for the plaque, because of that circumstance, because Norman Morrison died and all of the uh, people, the uh, uh, captives that were on the Speedwell were listed as part of his inventory, we have the names of 21 of the people in their original African names uh, which is very unusual. Uh, the slavevoyages.org database has a listing of 36,000 slave voyages uh, uh, involving 10, 10 to 12 million people. Very, very few of those uh, list the names, the actual names of the people who were taken captives. This allowed us at the ceremony to actually commemorate those people by name 
Uh, and to, and there was a, a you know a very moving ceremony where people uh, put flowers into the into the water as each name was being read. Uh, so it gave us, a, 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 it was a very uh, emotional and a very uh, moving and poignant piece of that, which was just a, just a lucky circumstance uh, in that we were able to, to, uh, to find those names in the inventory. Yes, I, I um, actually reported this voyage of the Speedwell to the Transatlantic Slave Trade Database because it's one of those rare voyages that is documented in a will rather than, you know, someone finding a ship's manifest or some other evidence of uh, like from a newspaper article that a voyage took place. And it was just very moving to see those names. Now, when Morrison died, he was buried with his son, who also died of smallpox, on Market Street, where his house and garden once stood. And today, his tablestone lays encased in a wrought iron fence next to the entrance of the now shuttered St. Anthony's Church. Um, his son's footstone is all that remains of his grave, and it's embedded in the stone wall that enclosed his father's tomb. Um, their garden has been replaced by asphalt, and one can't help but think that this is sort of a, a suitable resting place for people who were so deep into, into the trade. Mm. Sometimes people are important to a story who didn't actually participate in the events themselves. Benedict Arnold, for instance, was not an important figure in the slave trade per se, but he's critical in New London's story. Why? And, um, well, and can you tell us a little bit about, you know, why he's important to this bigger story of the slave trade? Well, for me, he's uh, really important because of the Custom House. Once the uh, American privateers had taken this British ship, it angered the British pretty badly. So in comes Benedict Arnold and he burns New London. What's the first building he burns in New London? The Custom House. And the Custom House was the repository, the library, the what have you, of all of those ships' documents. And when we are so today so thankful that we have the information on the Speedwell, think of the information we possibly could have had but for the burning of the Custom House. And it is something that as we start to piece together information from wills, uh, from town records, whatever we can find, a lot of it always works its way back to New London. And some of those documents that I'm sure we would have had are gone because of Benedict Arnold's actions in the burning and sacking of New London. Yeah, that's really interesting stuff. And, and there, there's, a, there's another kind of a side story to that that's ironic in that the, the reason uh, Benedict Arnold came was to, he was sent here by a guy named General Clinton, uh, partly to punish the privateers uh, because they captured the Hannah, which was the most valuable prize taken during the entire Revolutionary War. Well, the guy that captured the Hannah was a guy named Dudley Saltonstall. Okay, Saltonstall is a very uh, familiar name here in New London. Uh, Gurdon Saltonstall was one of the first governors after the Winthrops in the early 1700s. Uh, his son, Gurdon Jr., was a brigadier general, and he was also a slave trader. He owned at least two slave ships, and he trained his son, Dudley, on those slave ships in the business. And part of the reason that Dudley Saltonstall became a ship's captain was because of his experience as a slave trader, which he engaged in prior to the revolution and which he also engaged in after the American Revolution. He went back into the slave trade in the 1780s, in the 1790s, and making direct 
uh, voyages to Africa and uh, returning in, in one case that we know of on the ship Commerce. He, uh, he brought uh, 100 and I think it's 117 uh, captives from Africa to Charleston, where he was in business with a family, with a business called Winthrop Todd and Winthrop. And ironically enough, Winthrop Todd and Winthrop are descendants of John Winthrop Jr., the founder of New London. In fact, one of those Winthrops was born in New London. So the ties to all of this are, are, are uncanny. And the more we go in and, and, and research this, the more ties we find. Uh, and this was just the tip of the iceberg. We know that there was that one voyage of the Speedwell, uh, but we've done some research in New London and we have about 40 voyages that involve uh, not directly to Africa, but most of the trade came from the West Indies. It was part of the what was called the West Indies trade, which sounds innocuous enough, but it involved, uh, they, they estimate between somewhere in the mid 1700s, 79% of the ships that were in, engaged in the West Indies trades, for which we know the cargo on that ship, 79% of them included human cargo. Uh, they were bringing cotton, molasses, rum, and uh, enslaved captives uh, for sale. Uh, and that's how that's another way that the population of the enslaved uh, was grown here in Connecticut. They came in in, in drips and drabs, five, ten uh, or so on a, on a ship. But it happened for decades and decades and decades. And one of the things that kind of sped that up was that the indigenous people were being moved around as slaves, but uh, when they were bringing people from the Carolinas, uh, indigenous people from the Carolinas North, uh, there, there was a, a huge uprising in uh, hostility. And all of a sudden, uh, Connecticut, I think, and Massachusetts started to push back a bit on bringing indigenous people up and enslaving them. And that actually added to the number of uh, enslaved people that were then brought uh, to Connecticut, Massachusetts, Rhode Island. We'll be back in a minute with our guest. I'm Kathy Hermes, the new publisher of Connecticut Explored. If you're enjoying our Grading the Nutmeg podcasts, I feel sure you'll love our print magazine with its articles, photo essays, and all the news about upcoming exhibits, history-related events, and historic places to visit. Subscribe now at ctexplored.org. You like podcasts about Connecticut history? Well, here's another one for you to check out. Amazing Tales from Off and On Connecticut's Beaten Path. Every Thursday, a new 20-minute story. And all you have to do is search for Amazing Tales with Mike Allen, and you'll find it wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Now back to our Grading the Nutmeg podcast. It's so interesting, these networks, you know, between South Carolina, Connecticut, Rhode Island, especially Newport, London, the West Indies, it all kind of, you know, they were circling around and um, communicating with each other, trading with each other. The Spanish Indian question is, I think, a very interesting one. There's a, a man buried in Southington who um, was a was a so-called Spanish Indian, so probably from Florida, but possibly the Carolinas. They were sometimes called that in the Carolinas. And he's he left a will. And it's and it's interesting to get a glimpse of the kind of lonely lives some of these people left because in his will, he gives all of his property back to 
the people who manumitted him who had been his former masters. And I think it really tells you about the, the kind of natal alienation that so many enslaved people felt. They, they had no other family, as it were, than the people who were their enslavers. Norman Morrison, by the way, also did trading with uh, merchants in Newport who would send to London for baskets and beadwork that he would then use to grease the wheels in West Africa to trade for information about where he could get captives and things like that. And the West Indies trade, the Lords, the Willises, so many people in Hartford, as well as New London, engaged uh, in that trade. Everything that uh, was uh, happening uh, in commerce at that time in some way reflected back a touch to trade. In M Middletown, you know, there's a plaque. Middletown was known as the onion capital of the world. You know, the land was so valuable in the Caribbean to raise and harvest white gold, which was sugar, mm -hmm. that uh, Tom has often talked about the number of horses that were shipped out of New London how the wood, everything, because it was so profitable. People were becoming, uh, you know, for their days, very wealthy. And that wealth has continued on in many families until this very day. You know, the, there's a guy called Bernard Dalen, uh, who's considered the dean of colonial historians. And he describes uh, New England as having uh, the highest standard of living the world has ever seen based on the trade with the West Indies. Uh, it was a, a hugely lucrative trade. Uh, Lonnie mentioned the, the horses. New London was known for sh shipping domestic animals to uh, the Caribbean. What was going on in the Caribbean was what they called the Barbadian model. It was Barbados. The island would be clear cut. Uh, they would uh, co combine plant, uh, smaller farms into huge plantations that were staffed by enslaved laborers, uh, and they devoted every square inch of the island that they could to, to the lucrative white gold, to the sugar product, sugar uh, industry, uh, which meant that everything else they depended on coming in from elsewhere. They had to import food. Uh, that made New England the, the provisioners and the enablers of these, uh, I don't like to call them plantations, uh, they were more like slave labor camps and gulags uh, where people were brought to die and uh, they were worked to death. Uh, and, uh, but New London and, and, and New England uh, were the provisioners for that because they would ship hundreds of thousands of pounds of onions, uh, uh, dried fish, salted fish, uh, salted beef, Domestic animals. There was a tremendous need for animals uh, in in the in the Caribbean to run the sugar mills, uh, to transport the product from the uh, from the fields uh, into the uh, ports, and to also to fertilize the fields. Uh, and so they would. There was a tremendous. There were years when uh, New, New London would ship six thousand, eight thousand horses a year. Where does a town with a population of about three thousand get six thousand horses? They get them from all over New England. So the whole of New England was involved and it was being, a lot of it was being funneled uh, through New London. The, the numbers, when you see the numbers, the numbers are astounding. Uh, when you see 100,000 ropes of onions, each one of those ropes is five pounds. That was in one year, okay? 500,000 pounds of onions 
shipping to the to the Caribbean. Uh, you know the the, the prosperity and the, the, the in fact in everybody where where New England farms were basically earlier there were subsistence farms where uh, that people survived on. Uh, it turns out with the West Indies market, anyone who could overproduce anything would be able to market it and ship it to the to the Caribbean and make money on it. So the whole economy was uh, was being driven by that. And therein lies the issue of having uh, people who were enslaved because you would need people to actually do that work. So this is all pre-cotton, pre-corn and what have you. They're raising crops here specifically to sell to the islands, you know, and backing up a little, when we were talking about this plaque, you know, these plaques now run from Portsmouth, I think, New Hampshire uh, to Galveston, Texas. And though that's a, an idea of just how far-reaching the slave trade was in America. And you think about, you know, the American Revolution interrupted the trade with the Caribbean, and that allowed Connecticut, I presume, to become the provision state during the revolution. They had all this, uh, they had all this livestock and crops and things that they normally would have shipped to the West Indies that they could now use to supply the army. Yes, yes, that is true. That is true. Um, and, and so uh, they were not alone. And so much of that, uh, too, was produced by the labor of the enslaved. Absolutely. And, and this continued, uh, of course, into the uh, we're talking about the mainly the 18th century here. The, the 40 voyages that, that we found uh, were largely uh, in the in the 18th century, but it continued into the 19th century, even beyond when the. Uh, the United States government and Britain outlawed the international slave trade. Uh, Britain did it in 1807. The U.S. did it in 1808. Uh, but we have voyages uh, going right up until the 1860s, That many of which were, by the way, based in New York. New York was a center of slave trading outfitting uh, for ships after it was uh, illegal. And uh, we find also the, uh, you know, the, the industry and the, and the prosperity of the uh, of, of New England was continued to be dependent on uh, the slave business in that, uh, you know, there were something like 150 textile mills in Connecticut. So if you wonder why Connecticut was so strongly anti-abolition, people think of Connecticut as kind of a blue state and progressive. Well, it was anti-abolition into the 1830s and the 1840s, largely for economic reasons. Uh, they knew that if the if slavery was abolished, that was going to impact the cotton production. It was going to impact the textile industry. So they were they saw the abolitionists as a threat to their livelihood. Even during the Civil War, when it started, New York was standing on the fence. You know, there was a great fear that New York would side with the South based upon that very reason, the amount of money that they were making basically off of the silly trade. That's true. The mayor of New York, Fernando Wood, in 1861, when uh, South Carolina, uh, 1860, 61, when South Carolina seceded, uh, he advocated that New York should declare itself an independent state so they could continue to trade with the South because they, there was so much uh, financial uh, investment on the part of uh, the, uh, the the financial center uh, in New York, not only uh, outfitting ships, but I mean, uh, I, I, and this was something that was kind of surprising to me that planters, uh, when, when you're when you're growing cotton, you get paid when the cotton when the when the harvest comes in. Uh, how do you survive for the other eleven months of the year? Well, what you do is you mortgage 
and you could mortgage your enslaved people. You not, they had paid insurance on them also, uh, but they could mortgage them. And enslaved people were sold as bundled mortgages, and they were traded on the New York Stock Exchange. I couldn't believe that. Like uh, like uh, pork bellies and uh, commodity and what it was a commodity and you could buy and sell you could be invested in the in the slavery uh, without actually owning any slave you owned a piece of paper a debt uh, a, a paper of debt uh, that would rise and fall like the uh, like the like the corn commodity the same the same for the insurance you know? that's right the insurance business uh, was very lucrative. Uh, because of the slave trade. And it caused uh, an awful lot of problems uh, later on in this state when people were advocating uh, for the abolition of slavery, but it was making, again, so much money. Yeah, I think uh, Aetna just came, recently came out and made some statements on that. Aetna, of course, is based in, uh, or was based in Hartford, I think they still are, uh, but they have made some acknowledgements of the uh, role that their business played. Uh, in, in slavery. In fact, so the, the, the pivotal case uh, involving the Zong, which was a, uh, a slave ship uh, in England, basically that case changed England and the root of it was insurance because the argument was, were they going to pay the insurance for the lost Africans? And uh, as it turned out, the argument was, uh, were they thrown overboard or did they actually die or what happened? What happened? And uh, as a result of that case, through a series of events, uh, slavery uh, ended in England. One last question here. As we've seen, I think, from our discussion, the history of slavery uh, in Connecticut is not very well known, but uh, a lot of organizations, a lot of scholars are really trying to get the truth out there and are kind of really upending the history of the state as we've been telling it in the past. What do you want our listeners to know and remember about the history of African captivity? What I would like for people to know is that when you see those markers, you are actually looking at not only the trials and tribulations of a group of people, but you're also looking at their success and their ability to forge ahead no matter what the adversity. And this story really turns out to be not just a story about Africans, it turns out to be a story about America. And one of the things I've learned from Tom is that you have to be curious to really be a good historian. And you have to have courage to actually tell the true story. And what is happening with these plaques now is that people are coming forth with the curiosity, the courage, and the ability to stay in the fight to bring this story to light so we all can know that we have put something into this pot that we call the American soup. For more information on Morrison, see A Doctor's Feelings in the Transatlantic Slave Trade, The Story of Norman Morrison by Chelsea Javaria and Kathy Hermes at AfricanNativeBurialCT.org. To learn more about the Black Heritage Trail and the Ancient Burying Ground, and other game changers bringing innovation to the telling of Connecticut's past. Get your copy of the fall issue of Connecticut Explored at ctexplore.org.